when he got bitten by a snake, he got burned up, he got turned to cinders, and he came back together again. We saw all that happen, but who in the world was he? That's what happened in the last episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and we are slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are watching strange metamorphoses. Well, so far, I guess, just one metamorphosis, a strange metamorphosis here in the seventh of the Malabolgia, the evil pouches that make up the eighth circle of hell, the giant circle of fraud. Apparently, the sin that gets the most terroir in all of Inferno. Fraud, that which humans do to each other. Who is this guy that got snake bit in the last episode of this podcast, in the last passage we covered? Well, we're about to find out. We're at Inferno, Canto 24, lines 121 through 151. I want to warn you in advance that this is a complicated passage. We're going out to the end of Canto 24, and actually this sequence doesn't end until farther on into Canto 25, but I just want to warn you up front, this is a complicated sequence. So let's just read it, and then we're going to go through it line by line, as we always do. Then my guide asked the guy who he was. So he came back with this. I rained down from Tuscany a while ago, right into this fierce maw. I like to live a bestial life, not a human one. So it's no surprise that I was a mule. I'm Vanny Fucci, the beast. And I denned down in Pistoia. I, to my guide, tell him not to slink away by asking him what sin he got thrown down here for. Because I know him as a bloodthirsty and cruel man. When he ever heard me, the sinner didn't play around. Instead, he did an about face to confront me head on and got painted with shame. He said, It causes me more suffering that you have caught me in the misery where you see me now than I ever felt when I was torn out of my former life. I can't even nix a reply to what you ask. I got shoved down here because I swiped the gorgeous pieces from the church's sacristy, although others take the blame for the crime. But so that you may not take any joy from seeing me down here, and if you ever get away from this dark spot, open your ears to what I've got to say and catch this. Pistoia first gets rid of its blacks, then Florence renovates its people and ways. Next, out of the valley of Magra, Mars pulls a lightning bolt out of a bunch of threatening clouds, along with a sudden and bitter tempest, all as they hurry on to war above Campo Piceno. That bolt will tear clear the mist and fog so that the whites will feel the hard blows. What's more, I'm just telling you this to make you suffer. Well, there's the passage, and it is complicated, elliptical. You should know that some of it is even disputed today. Its interpretation, that is, is disputed today. Because when he launches into that bit about Pistoia and Florence, 
There's some dating problems going on. It's tough to pin down exactly what he's talking about. He's speaking extraordinarily elliptically. So we're going to take a running start into that and take the passage as it comes. Because, wow, it is a doozy of a passage when Vani Fucci finally speaks. Let's go. Let's start out. The passage begins, then my guide asks the guy who he was, and we could just pause for a moment and say, what's Virgil so interested in here? I suppose it's natural for Virgil to ask, you know, who is this guy who has been reduced to cinders, reconstituted, stood back up, kind of shaken it off, and and then just stood there dazed for a second. I suppose it's normal for Virgil to wonder who this is, and yet... You have to also ask yourself, is there a connection here? Because what is happening, as we've already discussed, is so Ovidian, so out of Ovid's metamorphoses, that it is intriguing that it catches Virgil's attention more so than the pilgrims. Is there a poetic rivalry between Virgil and Ovid that is lying underneath this text? Is there a way that Dante himself is seeing a rivalry between those two figures? This is one of the few moments in which Virgil's questions are unmotivated. Sometimes he's prompted by the pilgrim. Sometimes he's prompted by the circumstances. I think back to Capaneus and Capaneus's blasphemy out on the sands. Uh, It's usually got a motivation behind it when Virgil asks a sinner something or when Virgil pushes the pilgrim toward a sinner as he does with Farinata. Here, Virgil just kind of out of the blue says, okay, who are you? And the guy comes back and says, I rained down from Tuscany a little while ago right into this fierce maw or throat or gorge or gullet. Right here, it's a a very digestive metaphor. I, I like to live a bestial life, the guy says, not a human one. So it's no surprise that I was a mule. I'm Vani Fucci, the beast, and I denned down in Pistoia. One thing that we can say here about Vani Fucci is the man has got a lot of metamorphoses. He has become rain. I rained down from Tuscany. He's become food into this fierce maw or throat. He's a beast. I'm Vani Fucci the beast. And I'm a mule. It's no surprise I was a mule. A mule, as you know, is the product of a donkey and a horse mating. It's usually sterile, a mule. And so there's generally thought in commentary to be a joke about Vani Fucci's masculinity going on here. Nonetheless, we would say a beast of burden, even though he himself is actually a murderer and a thief, but a beast of burden. I mean, gosh, how many transformations has this guy undergone? He got snake bit in the last episode, reduced to cinders, reconstituted, then he's rain, then he's food, then he's a donkey, then he's a beast. There is just a constant deformation of the self here. It's it's as if he has changed forms many times in his life, lived a bestial life, not a human one, was a mule, I'm Vani Fucci, the beast. Maybe there's a way... We could even push this and say the metamorphosizing life 
gets you here. The life in which you commit so much fraud that you are constantly making up who you are and constantly changing your nature to fit whatever situation you're in, that's the kind of fraud that gets you into this pit, even though we do find that in this passage, the specific theft. <laughs> crime, sin, that brings him here to the seventh Malabolgia. But we'll get to that as we go down. You should just know that Vanifucci is an actual historical figure. He was the illegitimate son, thus mule, the illegitimate son of the Lazari family of Pistoia. He has a very colored and bright and disgusting history, which we'll talk about in a bit. And this is actually a historical figure standing here. I think that's all important to note because again, it goes back to the truth claims of the text. And one more thing before we pass on from who this is to the pilgrim's questions to this guy. One more thing we should note is that he says, I reigned down from Tuscany. And if you remember that passage that I just read you, it ends with thunderstorms and lightning bolts and threatening clouds. So in all of Vanifucci's speech here, all the times he talks, there's a nice bookend of rain or storm imagery on either side of it. That's very nicely done on the poet's part. To start him out with one metaphor, to end him up at another place, it's nicely bookending it structurally. And we're seeing this more and more, this bookending of structure in cantos, inside of sins themselves, inside of subsets of fraud. We're seeing this bookending structural functionality, and it's here right inside of Vanifucci's speech itself. So what does the pilgrim want to know? After Fucci identifies himself, and again, isn't it funny that it's this late in the moments when we've been this with this guy, it's this late that we finally get who it is. It's this slow reveal, as I talked about last time. Um, anyway, the pilgrim says, tell him not to slink away. Um, and uh, a lot of commentators point to that as a move by thieves, that thieves tend to slip away or slink away or try to get away without being noticed. I don't know, that seems back reading in the passage. I tend to think more that the pilgrim asked this because he knows who Vanifucci is and that Vanifucci is a very treacherous guy. I don't know that it that ties exactly to being a thief so much as the pilgrim is making a claim about knowing who this is. Tell him not to slink away by asking him what sin got him thrown down here because I know him as a bloodthirsty and cruel man. The pilgrim's claim is that he he knows this guy from real life, and that's a curious little bit. There is much talk about this in commentary. Many people accept Dante the poet's notion that he knew Vani Fucci. There's actually no reason to believe that he did. There is a question about whether, how do I say this if you want to get really fancy, whether the poet is thieving someone's identity here. Pistoia and Florence are not necessarily an easy trip between them in Dante's day. I mean, it's you can do it, but it's not a simple trip between them. It's a question of whether they would actually ever come in contact with each other. A lot of commentators invent a lot of stories to make them in contact with each other. I don't know. Uh, he could just know 
of him. And when the pilgrim says, I know him as a bloodthirsty and cruel man, he could mean no of him, not knowing, but it does seem to be more no personally. Uh, you should know that in 1293, starting about then and then forward for the next few years, uh, this Vani Fucci character carried out a series of political murders in Pistoia of Pistoian white Gelfs. And Dante himself is of the party of the white Gelfs. I think also there's something else behind this question. If the pilgrim knows this guy as a bloodthirsty and cruel man, this question may be how come he's here and he's not in sticks with the angry, the irate up there in the river sticks where we saw Filippo Argenti? Or it may be, why is he not with the violent? Remember the first circle of violence uh, not only includes murderers, but plunderers. It comes down to just two highwaymen at the end of that whole sequence. So why is he not up? there, since I knew him to be that kind of person. None of the commentators make a big deal here about Dante reversing Aquinas. Aquinas makes a distinction between robbery and theft, and Aquinas claims that robbery is worse than theft because theft is just um, coming into your house and taking things, whereas robbery is doing you personal harm. Robbery, let's say, I rob when I rob you, I put a knife at your throat and I take your money and maybe I cut your throat or maybe I do something cruel to you. And uh, the claim here is that Dante has actually reversed them and the crueler uh, robbery is up above us whereas this is just more standard theft. I'm not sure, given what I know about Vani Fucci, about his own political murders of white Pistoians, that we can make that claim. That seems a little contorted to me. It seems like commentators are making that so that they can show Dante pushing back against Aquinas. I'm just not sure that we can push the text this far. I am sure that we can question whether the poet Dante, sitting behind the pilgrim, actually knew Vani Fucci or only knew of him. But there does seem in the poem to be a personal link between them because of the way this gets so intensely personal as it goes forward. Let's then turn and look at Vani Fuji's first reply. When he, Fuji, overheard me, because clearly uh, the pilgrim is kind of whispering this to Virgil, when he overheard me, the sinner didn't play around. Instead, he did an about face to confront me head on and got painted with acrid shame. Oh, there's that word painted, which calls us back to the hypocrites who were a painted people. There's a link here between six and seven, between the sixth pouch and the seventh pouch with this word painted. Pucci goes on. It causes me more suffering that you have caught me in the misery where you see me now than I ever felt before I was torn out of my former life. I can't even nix a reply to what you ask. There's this strange way in which Fuji is a better man. <laughs> Dare we say this? Fucci is a better man than Pierre de la Vagna or Brunetto Latini or even Francesca, a better person than Francesca, because he is coerced to tell the truth and he tells it unvarnishedly. If you remember back to the suicide Pierre de la Vagna, and if you remember back to Brunetto Latini, and if you remember back to Francesca, you can remember that they varnish heavily their stories. 
Fucci doesn't. And he doesn't lay it on thick instead. As you know, he's going to just tell you exactly what he did. He's going to lay it on thick with the prophecy that he's going to utter, but not in terms of his sin. And so there's a way in which we could actually say he's a more honest figure? Is this fair? This seems weird to say. A more honest figure than Latini or Pierre or Francesca, who are all trying to cover up their sins. It's also one of the reasons that I would never classify Fucci as one of the great sinners of hell. He's too straightforward until he gets to his prophecy and then gets very <laughs> obscure and very, very occluded in what he has to say. But up until that point, he is extremely straightforward. Interesting here, also, we could stop and say something about the will. You notice that he says, I can't even nix a reply to what you ask. I mean, the, 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 in the Florentine, it's pretty strong. He, he is coerced into replying. There is no way around it. There's a way in which the damned have lost their will and they have to speak. I suppose we could say that the great figures of the damned, Francesca, Latini, Delavegna, and one that's lying two cantos ahead of us, we could say <laughs> that the great figures of the damned varnish themselves very well. And while they are forced to reply, like Francesca in The Lustful, they nonetheless so tell their story that you have to decode it. There's not anything to decode here except the fact that it's interesting that Fucci feels shame. It causes me more suffering that you have caught me in the misery where you see me now than I ever felt before I was torn out of my former life. And you should know, this is as Dante says, the pilgrim says, this is a bloodthirsty and cruel man, a man who carried out political murders and then engaged in a really low thievery, which is what we're going to get to next. I got shoved down here. Fuji says, because I swiped the gorgeous pieces from the church's sacristy, although others took the blame for the crime. Okay, we kind of have to unpack this historically. And this is the first time we know what this pouch is about, that it's about theft. Now, this doesn't seem to me to be theft as in um, some teenager broke into my garage and stole my lawnmower, or even somebody broke into my car and stole it in a parking lot. This seems to be much more, uh, what shall we say, cultural, societal theft. This is, this is dangerous theft. This is stealing church property, which is how towns were organized around their various relics and around their various, well, to use an orthodox word, icons or images or statues or paintings. I mean, towns were centered on these things, and to swipe them is really a kind of a societal kind of theft, a civic kind of theft. So he admits to it up front. Let's just now pull off and say it's theft for the moment, that he swiped the gorgeous pieces from the church's sacristy. Again, notice how long it's taken us to figure out what the sin being punished here is. And then he seems to take much gloating in all the others took uh, the blame for the crime. This theft probably happened sometime around 1295. Some commentators put it at 1293. Some put it at 1296. Let's just go with 1295 as an easy answer. It happened in the church of San Zeno in Pistoia. Um, San Zeno was a very important, even pilgrimage church, because the, some of the relics of St. James had been placed there in the mid-1200s. And the relics of St. James 
James placed in San Zeno in Pistoia in the mid-1200s, of course, caused all kinds of other very expensive and beautiful ornamentation and reliquaries and monstrances and all that stuff to start to circulate around those relics. Relics in the Middle Ages function as gravitational wells, and they function as gravitational wells because they start to control trade routes across Europe. Much of what we now think of as the major routes of Europe are established based on where relics got placed. So they establish trade routes and also uh, wealth starts to collect around them because just to be quite honest with you, in the Middle Ages, a tourist industry starts to develop around those relics. So taverns and hotels. So that St. James's relics are placed in the Church of San Zeno in Pistoia in the mid-1200s. Some of them are placed there. Automatically is starting to set it up as a place that's going to have nice stuff. And in fact, it does have nice stuff. And it is apparent that there was a theft of some silver tablets that contained images of the Virgin and the Apostles. And this is probably the theft that Vani Fucci is making reference to. Fucci may have left the city right when this theft occurred. There's even some uh, evidence to suggest he left Pistoia before the theft occurred. It's kind of odd. Uh, Others did take the blame at first, um, and then he seemed to have been uh, part of a confession. It's all kind of dark in history at this point. Um, The details are a little bit difficult to track down. I think one of the stories is that Rampino di Francesco Ferresi was charged with the theft at first in 1295. And then Vanifucci was caught on the run, and Vanifucci was one of the conspirators, but instead of confessing to his own guilt, he fingered Vani della Mona, another one of the conspirators, and said, well, basically, Rampino is not at fault here. It's Vani della Mona. He's really the one who did it. Um, they let Fucci go, at least in this telling of the story, and Vani della Mona is is executed in the place of Rampino. If that's the story, that one guy is switched for another and the execution takes place, just hold that in your brain for Canto 25 of people switching places with each other. If that is, in fact, the true story going on behind here, it may have a foreshadowing for what's ahead of us in Canto 25, but I don't want to get too far off under that. I just want to tell you that a lot of the details here have been lost to the historical record. A lot of commentators, particularly in the 1300s, the 1400s, and the 1500s, are at pains to dare I say it, make up the details of what's going on here. There was a theft from the church. Most likely, this figure, Vanifucci, was involved. Most likely, there were co-conspirators. Most likely, Dante's got the the lowdown here, even though we can't see all of the details. By the way, when Vanifucci is finally accused of the crime, it is much later. It may even be after the year 1300. And some commentators say that Dante dropping it here in the text is actually dropping news 
many people wouldn't know of Fucci's involvement with the theft. And so when Dante's writing this, it's just recently come out. So he's basically writing news into comedy, as it, as it were. Again, it's hard to pin it down. Lots of different opinions about what's going on here. Lots of historical detail. Lots of articles and dissertations written on the historicity of what's going on behind this. You should know that it's just a little bit of a model. I like the Rampino story with Delamana and one man switching places for another because Fucci fingers them and causes an execution of one guy in the place and the other. I like that because it ties so neatly with what's ahead of us. But that also may not be the full story. Hard to tell this far back. But what we can say is that while he just states out what he did, I shoved down here because I swiped the gorgeous pieces from the church's sacristy and others took the blame for the crime. After that, he launches into an extraordinarily elliptical prophecy. He says, but so that you may not take any joy from seeing me down here, and if you ever get away from this dark spot, and that's an interesting bit right there. Fuji, what, posits that Dante may get out of hell? We know that that's going to happen. How does Fuji know that? Or how does Fuji think that might happen? Not every sinner thinks that Dante's getting away from here. In fact, some of them say, oh, I'm going to tell you my whole story because I know you'll never get out of here. Interesting that Fuji sees some liberation, at least darkly, for the pilgrim. But then, even though he sees that darkly, he launches into this wildly elliptical prophecy. Open your ears to what I've got to say and catch this, Fuji says. Pistoia first gets rid of its blacks. We're going to take this line by line. Pistoia first gets rid of its blacks. This happens when the black Guelphs are thrown out of Pistoia in 1301. Remember, the journey is allegedly happening in the year 1300, so this would be slightly in the future of the journey, although Dante is writing this after the events. So from the perspective of the pilgrim, this would look like the future. Pistoia first gets rid of its blacks, which happens. The black elves are thrown out of Pistoia in 1301. Then Florence, it goes on, renovates its people and its ways. This is a reference in which Florence does the same with the white Guelphs, the so-called Black Guelf coup in Florence from 1301 to 1302. This is what causes Dante's exile. So he's talking about the transfer of power and the way the black elves are thrown out of one place but take over in another place thereby resulting in Dante's own exile. Then he says next out of the valley of Magra Mars interesting Mars the god of war but this interesting weird reference here in hell to a Roman god Mars pulls a lightning bolt out of a bunch of threatening clouds. Most commentators see this as a reference to the white gelfs, white like clouds, along with a sudden and bitter tempest. This is probably a reference to Moro Elo Malaspina, who was nicknamed the Thunderbolt or the Headlong Thunderbolt. This is 
probably a reference to his leadership of the campaigns that ultimately defeated the whites, Dante's own party, all as they hurry on to war above Campo Piceno, a place near Pistoia, that bolt will tear clear the mist and fog, so the bolt will kind of undo the white gulfs, so that the whites will feel the hard blows. You should know that this is, again, a little obscure exactly what he's talking about. He may be talking about a temporary victory of the blacks in about 1302 or the final and full victory of the blacks in 1306. In that case, it is led by Malaspina. The whites never do return to Florence in power in any meaningful way after this, but what he's doing is basically saying, I'm telling you this to tell you that your party is going to be destroyed. Let's say two, uh, three things about this elliptical and strange prophecy. One, it involves the conflagration of fire and water, of thunderbolts and rain, and most medieval commentators of Ovid believe that the tempest between fire and water is the essential, fundamental, underlying cause of seasonal and earthly metamorphoses. And here, in fact, in the middle of a passage about a guy who is metamorphosized into ashes and then comes back together, we kind of have this uh, fire and water back and forth. That's the first thing. Two, notice that we are talking about political metamorphosis, that inside of all of this bit about Vanifucci's reign and Vanifucci's a beast and Vanifucci's incinerated and all of this bit that we've had about the various metamorphoses, notice it comes out to a place of political metamorphosis. And so we could say that the point of the passage is don't just say that the mm, damnation of metamorphosis only happens in hell, particularly because Dante himself will be put to uh, exile because of these political metamorphoses. Political metamorphoses are just as disturbing as infernal metamorphoses that are punishments. How do I say this? Don't, in other words, don't think you get out of this just because you're not damned. In fact, the world exists in a conflagration of political metamorphoses. And three, this is all spoken in extremely apocalyptic speech. What do I mean by that? I mean speech out of the Old Testament books of Daniel and Zechariah and Zephaniah, out of the New Testament book of the Apocalypse or the Revelation of St. John. This is all given in this very high-level, difficult discourse about uh, prophetic language that is spoken in kind of elliptical, metaphorical space. And you know, oh, right there, you know where I'm going with this. We had in the last episode of this podcast three metaphors to explain the metamorphoses, and we come out here to allegorical, metaphorical, prophetic speech. So the metamorphic space, the metaphors, space. How's that? The metaphor space that explained the metamorphoses 
ultimately transforms into prophetic language that explains the fate of Florence. So that poetic speech of metaphor is fundamental to understanding the political metamorphoses that are taking place on this earth. And Do you feel us getting abstract? We're getting extremely abstract. Let's pull it back down to the real world. This is the last in Inferno of four personal prophecies given to Dante the Pilgrim. The first is given by Chaco the Glutton in Canto 6 at lines 64 through 75. This is the first time we hear about the troubles of the whites and the blacks. We hear again out of Farinata's mouth in Canto 10 at line 79 through 81 we hear farinata express concern for dante the pilgrim as in oh i hope you can weather this he doesn't exactly say that but he has a level of almost fatherly concern as he makes reference to the coming conflagration of whites and blacks in tuscany and specifically in florence then brunetto latini Again, a fatherly figure to the pilgrim. He, in Canto 15, at lines 61 through 81, again makes reference to the coming unrest. He's he's linking it out to a larger unrest across the Italian peninsula. That's the third time we hear about how whites and blacks are going to actually be at each other's throats. And now here, in Canto 24, from Vani Fucci. And let me just say, if you just look at those four personal problems, prophecies, they're kind of interesting because Chaco's prophecy is like this one. It is very elliptical. Go back and look at it in Canto 6, lines 64 to 75. It's very elliptical. It's spoken in this kind of language of prophetic discourse, just like this is. So the book ended, the outside personal prophecies from Chaco and Vanifucci are elliptical and difficult to pull apart because of their extreme poetic and prophetic language. The middle two from Ferranata and Latini express personal concern toward the pilgrim. I, I, I worry about how you're going to survive the coming conflagration. Interesting, right? Elliptical prophetic language, personal connection, personal connection, elliptical prophetic language. This has to be ordered by the poet. This has to be set up in this way. It's too structured not to be set up this way. It's too, to use the word I used before, bookended. Okay, we have really banged on about this for a long while. Let's just finish out this passage with the very last line. Fani Fucci says, what's more, I'm telling you this to make you suffer. There's the motive. Listen, careful what you ask a guy who has nothing to lose, because when you ask a guy who's got nothing to lose, something about, (laughs) I don't know what, who he is or why he's here, when you ask questions of someone who has nothing to lose, you might get way more than you bargained for. And you have to think about this in terms of the emotional space of the pilgrim. He's just seen a violent and incredibly strange metamorphosis as this snake has bit the sky. He has then seen this guy reconstitute, shake it off. He has heard this guy as somebody either he knows of or knows directly. And then at the end of all of this, this guy in a very crappy move just absolutely lays it on and basically says, you think I'm suffering here? You're going to suffer. Oh, 
The emotional space here is gripping. Interesting that the emotional impact on the pilgrim is found inside of some of the most elliptical and difficult language in all of Inferno, Vani Fucci's prophecy. Interesting that that happens, right? The, the most pressing nightmare of the Florentine conflagration happens inside the most high-level poetic language here in Canto 24 during a series of metamorphoses. There are more metamorphoses to come. During a series of metamorphoses. This is a complicated passage, and I am not actually going to reread it right now, because what I want us to do is pass on in the next episode of this podcast and look at the finish up of this episode in Canto 25, and then I want to read you the whole Vani Fucci thing all at once so you can hear its entire sweep and the way it moves from very plain speech, I swipe the gorgeous pieces from the Church of Sacristy, to very high-level speech, both the explanation of the metamorphosis with its three metaphors and his very elliptical and allegorical prophecy of the whites and the blacks. I want you to hear the way the tonality shifts because part of the metamorphosis in this passage is the metamorphosis of the poetics, of the tone. So subscribe, come back. There's more to this yet. We're not done with Vani Fucci quite yet. There's one more bit that no one can ever forget, but we'll have to save that for next time. Read the podcast, please. <laughs> Even nice podcast will do me wonders. And I will see you back here in the next episode for the last of Fani Fucci and on to yet more thieves. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you soon. Mm-hmm.